Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling for Leighton Doing the Work Behind the Scenes. Coming up on today's show, we'll be joined by Jeremy King. He is the CEO and founder of Attest. He'll be discussing their second annual U.S. Consumer Trends Report. We get another look into what defines the shopper in 2022. Some trends that we can expect to bear out as the year progresses as well. In news, Simon provides an update regarding the mall space and perhaps some good news for retailers, some bad news from retailers, and some good news for REITs overall coming from this update. And we'll look ahead to some key developments in the produce section for the top two selling produce items out there. We're talking bananas and potatoes. Now, a quick reminder that you can follow us on social media, Instagram and Twitter, at Retail Podcast, where we upload from time to time pictures of our journeys throughout the country. And then also, if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy the interviews, we do appreciate it. If you like us or subscribe to our show, the more positive ratings we get, the more subscribers we get, works the algorithm such that others can check us out. So we certainly do appreciate everyone out there who has subscribed, everyone out there who has given a review for the podcast. We do appreciate all of those positive reviews. All right, let's get right to it as we jump into Simon's Q4 earnings and their overall fiscal year 2021 operations update. And it indicates strength in A-class malls. You know, a couple of weeks ago, we discussed CBRE's final 2021 numbers for retail real estate and talked about how CBRE's numbers indicated malls may still be experiencing a slight step back, maybe neutral even in occupancy in aggregate. But on that show, we qualified this by noting that A-class malls certainly didn't seem to be sharing in those issues based on what we've heard from various A-class retail REITs. And this sentiment was at least somewhat underscored by Simon's latest earnings call this past week in which they gave Q4 and full-year numbers. The number in particular that got the most play, including from real estate news website The Real Deal, is Simon's funds from operations for the full 2021 fiscal year. FFO, for those that don't know, that basically represents income for a REIT minus depreciation and amortization. So that's why funds from operations looked at as a bit more of a definitive mark versus, say, the earnings per share. But after a strong Q4 for Simon, they set a full year record for the company with FFO close to $4.5 billion in 2021. Now, this improved on their $4.3 billion they saw in 2019 back pre-pandemic by nearly 5%, and it was a significant jump over 2020, of course, the pandemic year, which saw FFO decline for Simon to $3.2 billion. Now, this number that we saw from 2021 should be taken with a grain of salt, at least in the interim, between the 2019 number and the 2021 number, they picked up JCPenney, which is adding to their top line, of course, and said to be adding to their bottom line slightly. And they also continued the onboarding process for Forever 21 and Brooks Brothers, which may also be adding to some of those funds from operations. Therefore, at least based on a rough guess 
of where JCPenney and the other retailers that were picked up ended up at, we can see that maybe Comp FFO might be down or even versus 2019, but overall still a very positive sign that Simon's new acquisitions at least aren't hemorrhaging money, which CEO David Simon was very keen to point out on the call. In fact, he was so bullish as to say, and I quote, unlike others who make investments and lose money, we make investments and make money. Now, this is inarguably true if we're talking about top line, but since Simon has been somewhat veiled about the bottom line with their new retail store acquisitions, we'll kind of have to take his word for it. But at another time on the call, he referenced record retail sales for their retail holdings. Again, not sure if that's a record for Simon, which would be unsurprising considering the timing of the acquisitions, either pre-pandemic or during the pandemic, or maybe a record for the retailers that they hold, which would have to be on a per-store level considering the closings that we've seen across their retail portfolio. Even still, Simon's profitability overall was somewhat solid for the fourth quarter. They beat Zach's consensus estimates on earnings per share, which again comes in after those depreciation numbers, posting $3.09 for the quarter versus $2.88 expected. A good deal of this is due to their continued filling of vacancies and their ability to increase rents on new leases, something that we have talked regularly about, especially the leases that came up in 2021. In fact, for the year as a whole for Simon, net operating income or NOI from their domestic properties increased by 12% versus last year. Overall company NOI, so including their international holdings, increased 22.3% also includes the holdings they hold in partnership with Taubman Realty Group. NOI, as a quick refresher, is the net income a REIT sees from properties after expenses. So management fees, insurance, taxes, regular maintenance, and common area maintenance, if it's not reimbursed by the retailers, of course. So it's basically measuring the overall income they're generating from their properties. The fact that it's up 12% versus last year, A very positive sign for the fourth quarter alone, their NOI took a big year-over-year jump, 22.4% for their domestic properties. So this indicates that lease activity was brisk in the lead-up to the holiday season and that renters were at least close to back to paying full rents. And we'll talk about this a little bit later on, but you'll recall many retailers were paying maybe discounted rents or even not paying at all last year even into the fourth quarter. But their overall occupancy numbers at Simon do show some of that brisk leasing activity coming out. Over the course of the year, Simon saw their occupancy increase from 91.3% at the end of 2020, still a pretty good occupancy number for a mall-based or a largely mall-based REIT. That jumped up to 93.4% by the end of 2021. This was a product of having signed over 4,100 leases in all for 2021. That accounts for over 15 million square feet. That's their highest amount of leasing activity over a full year for six years. You got to go back to pre-2016 to find a similar high number. Base minimum rent per square foot was also high for them. And this is a number we talked about when we talked about the CBRE study. For Simon, it came in at about $54, $53.91 per square foot. That's on a per year basis by the end of 2021. The national average for all classes of properties is about half that currently, at least according to that CBRE data. So this showcases the premium 
that Simon is attracting for their mostly A-class portfolio. One negative they did mention here in terms of getting new businesses leased up is they are seeing an increased lead time for stores to open. That's as a result of the pandemic and its ripple effects. So things like staffing, sourcing, construction, etc. Many mall-based leases don't start charging rents for a certain period of time to allow stores to get set up and get open. So, of course, this might be affecting Simon's cash flow, but also affecting retailers' cash flow. If it's taking you on the higher end of that six to nine months, we often cite for mall retailers signing leases to them opening their doors. If it's taking closer to nine months, that's, of course, three months less time that retailers have to make back some of those opening expenses. But as far as the mall-based retailers are concerned, there are some positives here, especially when you consider occupancy remaining more or less flat countrywide for malls. Simon's Renters saw a very nice Q4 bump, a similar retail bump to what other retailers outside of malls saw. And so this indicates that the stores that are remaining open, that were able to open during the year, they were doing quite well. Specifically, sales for mall retailers in the fourth quarter were up 8% over 2019. So that's 8% in terms of their brick and mortar sales numbers in these Simon properties. That is a pretty substantial jump when compared to pre-pandemic. It was, of course, up substantially versus 2020, up 34%. But for the retail stores in their mainline mall and outlet complexes for Simon, sales reached a record $713 per square foot. Sales for their Mills division, they often have off-price stores. You're looking at Marshalls and Ross and such. Closer to B-class tenancy in those. Those lag slightly behind. Still pretty substantial at $645 per square foot. And then you look at their properties that they hold with the Taubman Realty Group. Sales were $942 per square foot on average, 31% year-over-year increase there really shows the strength of that A-class retail going on currently. All of these record-setting sales numbers added to the bottom line because Simon did something pretty crafty during the pandemic. I mentioned that Simon might not have been getting full rents from retailers during the course of the pandemic. So what Simon did is they went through, met retailers where they were at, and said, hey, yeah, we'll negotiate with you. And Simon said, we're going to bet on ourselves. We're going to bet on the strength of our properties. So Simon agreed to reduce base rents for a lot of their tenants in exchange for a percentage of reported sales, kind of internally betting that these reported sales numbers would go up. So when all of these retailers saw blossoming sales in 2021, saw these sales increases even versus 2019, Simon was the benefactor. And in some cases, They actually made more on leases than they did pre-renegotiation. When you include these funds in the base minimum rents per square foot, that number balloons for Simon to $62, which is pretty remarkable. And you have to certainly give leadership credit there in terms of betting on themselves, working on a solution that benefited both the retailers in their properties and the long-term fundamentals of their REIT. Now, as far as Simon's guidance for 2022, they did note that they're projecting roughly equal retail sales. So sales for the retailers in their properties expected not to increase or to decrease. They're tempering expectations somewhat with uncertainty in the landscape, with uncertainty regarding supply chain, inflation, all the stuff that you hear us talk about on a regular basis. 
They also project their own costs to go up. So security, janitorial, and real estate taxes. David Simon actually said on the call, real estate taxes have been going up and going up substantially, which was remarkable considering, again, that many of their retailers and many of their retail properties were forced by these same municipalities who are charging the taxes to close back in 2020. So none too happy about those taxes going up, but that is a reality of any type of real estate, whether you're talking about residential or commercial. If you're a homeowner out there, you certainly know the pain of real estate taxes inching up year after year. But they also project more long-term leases on the horizon because a lot of local tenants, this uncertainty during the pandemic, they only re-upped for maybe six months or a year during the course of 2021 because they didn't know where the pandemic was going. Now that you're seeing more robust demand, Simon has it within their arsenal to say, hey, look, you can either re-up for a longer period of time at a higher rate, two to three years at a higher rate, or we'll find someone else to fill this spot. As such, rents are expected to increase independent of those retail sales numbers because some of those leases will be signed for significantly more per square footage than those local retailers' leases were during the course of the pandemic. Really quick, any update regarding JCPenney on the call had more to do with the financial state of that division than any specifics. David Simon did mention that JCPenney's liquidity position did grow sequentially. Liquid assets of $1.6 billion currently on the balance sheet and no borrowings on their line of credit. They did note that investments in JCPenney's beauty business to try and scale that up as part of their overall image, also investments in their digital platform, might cause a bit of a drag on the overall company bottom line, on the overall Simon bottom line in 2022. So I started by saying that there were positives for retailers, there were negatives for retailers, and positives for REITs. The positives for REITs, of course, rents continue to go up. You continue to see occupancy numbers rise, which is a positive and positive for those investors. Now, the negative and positive for retailers, negative is that rents are going up, right? They're paying more per year, paying more per square foot than they have at any point in time really previously. So that is a negative for retailers. The positive side of things is, look, sales are going up, particularly in these mall properties that Simon holds. You look at 8% sales increases for Q4 over 2019 for the brick and mortar setting. It's obviously a positive for these retailers. And we see this borne out in terms of the clamoring for additional spaces in Simon properties. So I think overall, a positive landscape for retailers, even if they will take some hits on rents, and even if they will take some hits in terms of paying their pro rata share of things like insurance and taxes, which are expected to go up in the year ahead. So very interesting as Simon's earnings calls always are. And I think it's interesting to look at kind of the mall landscape as we head into this next year and some of the expectations the major players in the game have for this type of retail. Now, coming up after this break, we'll talk a little bit further about what the consumer wants to see out of 2022, what's defining their purchase decisions in 2022. And we'll take a general view of the consumer with Jeremy King, the CEO and founder of Attest. He's going to delve into some very fascinating numbers, including numbers that tie social media usership back to purchasing habits and decision-making processes. Very interesting data they've got 
from their annual U.S. Consumer Trends Report. He'll join us to talk about it after this. We talk a lot about retailers' method of marketing on this show. You know, some retailers tend to go the more traditional route. Some retailers out there are somewhat hesitant to try influencer marketing. And, you know, this is for a number of reasons. People say it might be too risky, it's not measurable. Maybe some companies, maybe some CMOs out there just have kind of a, a thing against influencers. And believe me, I understand that. And our partner for this week's show, Hashtag Paid, also understands that. They are the number one rated influencer marketing platform on G2 Crowd because they understand this hesitancy to use influencers. Now, Hashtag Paid helps brands grow their email lists, build their online reputation, and sell products, but they don't do any of this with influencers. Instead, Hashtag Paid partners with some of the best creators out there. I'm talking about content creators. There is a difference between content creators and influencers and your customers. Here's the thing. Your potential customers know the difference too. People are starting to get a bit jaded when it comes to influencers. And that's why content creators are starting to carry the day when it comes to marketing. Hashtag paid makes it easy for you to test this channel. You can pick your audience and objectives. You can pick from a curated short list of creators and you can watch those creators make you and your marketing team, if you're a retailer or any other business, look like geniuses. They'll be indispensable, essentially, to your brand's growth. And they promise you won't have to spend all this time searching for influencers, haggling over prices and compensation and dealing with influencers or their representatives. Instead, you've got hashtag paid to do the work with content creators, not influencers, content creators for you. And it starts at $4.99. I'm talking $499. Absolute drop in the bucket. And better yet, listeners to the Retail Focus podcast get $500 of free working spend on your first campaign. Can't beat a deal like that. Go to go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail. That's G-O dot H-A-S-H-T-A-G-P-A-I-D dot com slash retail and receive $500 off your first campaign. The link is in the show notes. Highly recommend you check them out. Once again, $500 of free spend on your first campaign. Over the last few weeks, we've been profiling the 2022 version of the retail consumer. And that continues in this week's podcast as we look at Attest's second annual U.S. Consumer Trends Report. This report tracks consumer sentiment and also projected shopping behaviors for the year ahead. Joining us to discuss this report is Jeremy King, CEO and founder of Attest. Jeremy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Excited to be here. Now, first, I was wondering if you could give us some background on a test, both as a company and then also about where this consumer data comes from. Yeah, so we're a B2B SaaS company based in New York and London. I personally sound British, but my whole family's American, so I'm kind of transatlantic, and that's pretty much how our business is. So we exist for B2C companies 
to inform every intuition and dissolve any doubt by making it ridiculously easy to uncover opportunities and growth with consumer data. Deep down, we believe that your target customers, the people you're trying to reach, the people you're trying to understand, sell to, win market share with, influence, grow with, they're the ones that hold all of the answers to your biggest burning questions. And we've just made it remarkably easy and simple to show them things, ask them things, and that helps you grow revenue faster, be right more often, and innovate and explore new ideas, because that should be just as easy as surveying your existing customers. So we make that something you can start in 90 seconds and do every day, because that's helpful. Um, personally, I'm originally a scientist. I used to work in animal behavior, ecology, genetics, synthetic biology. So we're trying to take the scientific method of continuous testing and learning and exploration and making that possible for the biggest B2C challenges. And that's quite fun. This report specifically is something that we do annually overall on US consumer trends. And we do a number of quarterly or monthly subsets applied to different categories or different consumer groups or specific ideas like green shopping or veganism or telco trends and fintech trends, things like that. But we use our own platform to produce these data sets because it's interesting and because we can and they're fun to talk about. So always happy to share these things and always happy to talk about it. And we love data on the podcast, so it's a great match here. Let's go ahead and take a look at the report. Just taking a general overall view of the 2022 consumer, what characteristics define the shopper for this coming year? So four points across this whole report. One, overall, it's bad news for Main Street when it comes to America's shopping habits. So long rumored has been that coming out of the pandemic-ish and into 2022, the online-offline split will return to normal now that physical stores are opening back up again. So we wanted to quantify this and see how consumers are feeling about this and what their attitudes are. So our research indicates that Americans are still favoring online shopping. 37% of people say overall that they mostly or always shop online for products, excluding food, compared to 32% who primarily shop in store. So that leaves about 30% who split their shopping between online and offline. This again is excluding food. Um, what's interesting is when we start to get into the trends within this, the micro trends, the drivers, how this differs by age groups, but overall, this return to physical stores isn't happening at the pace that many people expected two years ago or one year ago. And this split shopping behavior or online preference behavior is growing and growing right now. And that's going to continue. All right. So we know that data shows that online shopping will continue to ramp up a little bit in terms of consumer preferences. But what are some other aspects in terms of maybe lifestyle or other things that kind of define that 2022 consumer? Yeah, it's interesting because this is, as I mentioned, being driven by specific groups. So point two, millennials are the demographic that are most likely to favor online shopping. Obviously, that intuitively holds. But let's get into the detail about just how much. So nearly half, about 45% of millennials, are now mostly or always shopping online. That compares to 40% for Gen Z, that falls to 36% for Gen X, and about 24.5% for boomers. So online is rising, and the increase in the split to online at the expense of offline shopping is driven by younger and younger groups. But what this data shows us is just how far that has gone and how fast it is changing, and the relative behaviors differences between those different groups. So highest for Gen Z, and then we see a decline in each generation 
And it's that those generations maturing as well as the overall online preference accelerating. That's what's driving the overall change I just mentioned. On the flip side, what's interesting is boomers are the only demographic to favor shopping in store or on main streets. So 49% of boomers say that they shop primarily in store for non-food products. Again, it's intuitive, but that's a big number. About half of boomers are still favoring in-store shopping. So there's a big opportunity there. That group isn't going away anytime soon. They are getting older, but they are not done yet. They are extremely affluent and have high property value, higher expendable income relative to those other demographic groups. So here presents a huge opportunity. I remember thinking back 10 and 20 years ago when people saw the rise and rise of fintech and online banking and said that bank branches would be gone in five years. That has not happened yet. There's a whole bunch of consumers that really value physical shopping, high streets, bank branches, and that is might be diminishing, but it's not going to change and remains a very, very valuable and high expendable income service line and channel for many businesses. So contrary to that stat about millennials, boomers, 49% primarily shop in store for food products, and that presents a big opportunity for many people and it's not going to go away. Let's carry this data now into grocery because something we've discussed over the past few weeks is the idea of brick and mortar grocery seeming to inch back in terms of overall spend versus digital, at least based on second half 2021 numbers. What were the study findings in terms of grocery spend and also preference in terms of channel? Yeah, so we talk about this as grocery or food shopping. So supermarkets, grocery stores are still top for food shopping despite increasing online options. So Two points here. One, despite the growth in same-day online delivery from supermarkets, Americans still prefer to shop for groceries the old-fashioned way. So six in 10, about 60%, prefer to shop in-store for food versus just 21% that primarily purchases groceries online. About 19% more split their food shopping between online and offline. So food shopping, grocery shopping is still something that people want to do in person in a store. The opportunity that presents is for inward draw and outward draw of retailer premises and real estate. Here is the continued center of gravity for physical traffic and shopping behavior. This doesn't look like it's a trend that's going to go away or change as fast as non-food or non-grocery shopping. So again, here's an interesting sub-trend to play into or avoid depending on what your strengths and weaknesses are. Second, we'll talk about boomers again. They are the most wedded to the supermarket to grocery stores. 81% of them always or mostly shop there with only 9% favoring online. So boomers, again, high expendable income, high affluence, interesting demographic, only 9% favor shopping online, 81% always or mostly shop in stores. And most likely to shop for food online is millennials, 29% favorite. So it's interesting to get into these splits and subtrends and the drivers behind this data. It's also interesting because such a vast amount of venture capital and private equity money is going into new food shopping channels. We see Joker, Gorillas, GoPuff, Getir, FastAF. These are all ridiculously well-funded online, high convenience, highly local grocery and food delivery companies that seem to be playing right into this online food and delivery trend focused on millennials and the younger generations, but boomers, it looks like their behavior isn't changing particularly quickly, nor are their attitudes. And the physical grocery stores and food shopping experiences for boomers, very valuable. And that's looking like it's going to hang around for much longer and isn't influenced by these long-term and short-term trends. While we're talking about generational differences, 
What are we seeing in terms of the freedom with which customers are spending or willing to spend? How careful are customers being with their money? And how does this change based on age group or generation currently? So we ran some research about shopping as a pastime, shopping as a hobby. It's always quite fun, we find in our research. We look at these sort of detailed and long-term trends to look for changes, particularly when there's such large values involved. Tiny fluctuations in drivers and subtrends can have major implications for market shares and market sizes. But we also run search on speculative things. So we looked at shopping as a pastime, shopping as a hobby, as a sport. So there's good news for the retail industry that activity around Americans, the most frequent activity that most Americans want to be doing in 2022 is shopping. A huge 60% of the audiences we surveyed say they go shopping weekly or daily. And this is based on a nationally representative audience across the whole United States. And we can dig into it in a lot of detail using our analytics in our product. That's interesting because this makes shopping the American national pastime. What's even more interesting is we started to compare that to different activities. So 60% of people say that they go shopping weekly or daily. 29% do a sporting activity with the same frequency. 22% are going to a group or club or class. So shopping is twice as popular and twice the airtime and twice the popularity of sports as a whole, and three times more popular as a whole than non-shopping fun things like going to a group or club or a class. So shopping is a national pastime. And Using our product, we can compare shopping to different activities, look at what's changing, the attitudes changing. And when we start to dig into the details, we find some really fascinating things. But overall, good news for retail, good news for consumerism in general. And this is the type of thing that our 2022 US Consumer Trends Report contains. One of the other things your data goes into or deep into is where customers want to hear from brands how they want to hear from them as well. What are some of the findings regarding the messaging they want to hear from brands currently and where they're connecting with brands? This one's really interesting because we ran some research around the platforms that you like to interact with and follow brands that you're interested in on. So this includes all the things you can imagine, specifically online. So Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, Snapchat, Pinterest, and then I don't interact or follow brands on social media at all is in there too. Twitch was also in there with a tiny minority. So this huge spectrum about where consumers want to or like to or feel secure to interact with brands online. What's interesting is the order that I rested them in just then, that's the order that they appear. So Facebook is ubiquitous, but a lot of people are opting out of Facebook as we saw recently. When we get into the groups that are more influenced by, for example, TikTok, so I'm, I'm looking at our platform right now, I'm just going to click on out of 2000 respondents, 25.1%, so exactly 498 of the respondents like to interact with brands on TikTok. And that's been rising progressively over time as TikTok has gained share and attention. We start to look at the correlations between other data points within the data set. So these people, in general, they eat more plant-based foods. They use less single-based plastic. They are less overall interested in recycling as a topic, but they do take fewer flights. These are the sort of sustainability practices they're interested in. And this is people who like to interact with brands in the TikTok channel. These are people who have different attitudes to the majority about spending money. So overall, there's been a lot of caution in the data set about spending. So overall top ranked for attitudes towards spending money at the moment overall the data set was strongly in favor of fairly cautiously or 
neutral around neither freely or cautiously. This TikTok group index almost double for spending very freely or fairly freely. So this is a sub-demographic. They are younger. They are more interested in sustainability. And those are things that we probably all already know intuitively. But at the same time, they have very liberal attitudes to spending. And when it goes to their channel split, they tend to have a quite an even channel split between online and offline. And they massively over-index on wanting to shop online versus in-store. But with a bit of a balance for some product lines. When we compare that to the group that are more influenced by things like, I mean, I'm going to pick out Twitch just because it's interesting. So this is out of the 2000 person data set, 153 people or 7.7% of the total audience. Let's look at those same things again. So these people, let's look at the same groups, far more interested in recycling, actively looking to switch to green energy suppliers. They want to reduce their car usage and they want to consume less overall. And then I'll look into their spending patterns. So again, they are looking to reduce consumption overall and spend on specific things, but they are far less cautious overall. They hugely under-index on spending very cautiously or fairly cautiously. They hugely over-index on spending very freely or fairly freely. And when we look into how brands should interact with that group, this is the Twitch group again. They really don't want to be entertained by brands. That was by far the number one overall type of brand messaging that consumers wanted to hear in this 2000 person sample set. As we get into that 7.7% who like to interact on Twitch, they want educational messages. They want thought provoking messages. They want messages built around inclusion topics. So here using this data set and cutting around within it, we can learn specific groups and specific drivers based on their behavior, their attitudes, and the combination of behavior and attitudes that starts to uncover these really interesting and thought-provoking topics around spending, attitudes, how and where these consumers like to interact with brands. So if you want to have a play around with this data set, we've basically open sourced it. You can play with it and do all the things I just said, plus whatever is interesting to you. And that's all in our 2022 consumer report. So please have a play with that. Some absolutely interesting findings, especially some counterintuitive findings, as you mentioned, with Twitch users, TikTok interactors, maybe being a little bit more free with the spend than what one could intuitively expect. Now, I wanted to ask you something just about the entirety of the report. Obviously, you deal with data day in, day out. You get a look at this stuff day in, day out. As your team was putting together this report, what were some of the most interesting or maybe surprising even findings to you? Well, I'll talk about me personally, because each reader of our report is reading it for different reasons, interested in different things. So there's a whole section in there and in the data set about what are you saving money up for at the moment? So I'll read them out in order. People like saving money up for Christmas or the holidays, vacations or trips, new vehicles, home improvement, mortgage deposits. Those are the top few. And then after that, we get into kind of a long tail about celebrations or parties, weddings, new business ventures, baby equipment, cosmetic surgery and dentistry was very interesting. A hundred people out of a thousand are saving up for cosmetic surgery and dentistry. So I like to get into these sort of weird outlier things. So again, I'm going to click on the hundred people who are saving up for cosmetic surgery and dentistry. And one of the very first questions was, what topics are you talking about with your friends at the moment? And very, very interesting things in here. So people talking about gaming computers and components, how to build a better gaming computer, hallucinogens, specifically DMT drama, 
Also, separately, unfairness about how their family treats each other, the economy getting ready for the holidays, and concert in Houston that killed eight people recently in the news. That's when we ran this. So all sorts of interesting things. And we can start to unpick these different attitudes and life events people are planning for, and then start to correlate it with the things that they're talking about in the news, in the media, long-term trends, short-term trends. And this is, starts to help us at a test uncover what's new or interesting both in the long-term trends, but also these, as you said, short-term new outliers that we can discover, because that, in our minds, is the genesis of opportunity. If you're a large company or trying to launch a new product or win new share or influence older or younger consumers, this is where you discover that alchemy. If you're a small company, this type of data tells you where the opportunity exists, particularly when you run that across your intuition, you see something that you believe is underserved. That's where our customers use our product to validate, test, iterate, explore new ideas and start to apply their own take and their own actions against the opportunities that this type of research and data set can uncover. So really interesting things. And I'll do a final thing just to sort of choose the exact opposite. So we were looking at that cosmetic surgery group. Let's look at people who are saving up for a mortgage deposit. Again, this skews younger. Peaks in the early 30s here, that's very different from 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago. But this is a particularly financially pressured set where we know from the famous case studies about Target and starting a family or moving home, that this is when consumption habits and long-term commitment to brands and retailers are up for grabs and the shift will be almost permanent in some cases. This is where Target likes to win customers. That is getting later in life those people have different pressures on their lives, their spending, their consumption than ever before. And I'm looking in front of me on our dashboard at a test at all the different things that define that group and their attitudes towards advertising challenges, how they want brands to interact with them, the types of reasons that they're concerned or excited about their lives. And all of this leads to their choices of channels, retailers, products, and the topics they're interested in. And this is, you know, gold, we hope, for <laughs> for people interested in consumption across the US and exactly what's going on and what to do about it. So please do download the report, always fun to look at it. And I've just picked out a few things that are interesting to me personally. Absolutely. And that report is linked also in our show notes from a test. Well, Jeremy, thank you so much. We enjoyed having you on and we appreciate you taking the time to discuss this report in detail today. Uh, pleasure to chat with you. Thank you for all the great questions. And again, thanks for listening and always happy to share. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Jeremy for joining us here on the podcast. One quick note, you know, we did discuss a little bit about online grocery sales and a report came out this week. Just wanted to address the overall numbers, but basically it was a survey done by digital marketing platform Chicory, and it indicated that Walmart, for those that shop online for groceries, is actually the retailer of choice. About 20% of respondents prefer Amazon, Instacart, and Target, both around 10%, but right around a third prefer Walmart. So I think that's kind of Interesting to note, by the way, Kroger, who we talk a lot about here on the show, they ended up earning less than 10% 
of votes there. So could either be that Walmart consumers enjoying the convenience or it could just mean that people that like their online grocery options have gravitated towards Walmart's platform for one reason or another. Well, we'll stay in grocery for looking ahead. We teased this early in the show, but a little bit of news came out this week regarding two of the most popular produce items, whether by pound or by dollars moved, in the supermarket. And this comes via Produce Market Guide. There's an issue with bananas, and the issue with bananas is very similar to the issue with other things in the grocery aisles as inflation has kind of hampered grocers' ability to turn bananas around at a larger profit. In fact, prices on bananas to grocers are increasing, but grocers have been very hesitant to raise prices because they see bananas as a staple item and they're concerned that people won't support higher prices charged for bananas. Well, at least for now, we can take a case study in Quebec as a potential example here, Equifruit is an importer and marketer of bananas that have been fair trade certified. So just kind of ensuring that the producers are getting a fair price for their fruit. Overall, when they put Equifruit bananas into grocery stores, people were more than willing to pay 99 cents per pound Canadian versus the 69 cents per pound on average that they were getting. So when retailers switched to Equifruit, you see that jump in prices. However, at least for fair trade bananas, there was no fall off in terms of overall traffic. To put this in perspective, in U.S. terms, the average retail price of bananas per pound in the U.S. for early January was 48 cents, and it was 43 cents early January of 2021. So overall, pricing has gone up, just not a jump by 30%. Now, the question is, how are grocers going to approach banana prices? Because right now they've maintained banana prices to the consumer, making bananas kind of a loss leader of sorts. After all, bananas are one of the highest selling produce items, if not the highest selling produce item, depending on time of year. And it's said that 1% of all revenue pulled in by grocery stores in the U.S. comes from bananas or in North America, I should say, comes from bananas. So will grocers go a route where they partner with fair trade type companies and then raise the prices on bananas using that as kind of an example as to why they're doing it? Or did this study show that people will pay a higher price for bananas? People will buy the bananas regardless of how cheap or expensive they are per pound to a certain point. I think that's going to be interesting to find out ultimately we'll have no choice but to find out in 2022 is I don't think grocers are going to be willing to take a loss in the long term on one of the largest selling produce items. And another produce item that's seen kind of the same issue pop up is the humble potato. Again, depending on time of year, potato usually in the top three in terms of overall sales, certainly in the top two in terms of pound sales and potato sales overall in 2021 were up compared to pre-pandemic levels of 2019. But again, you're seeing inflation, although they don't have to take quite the trip that bananas take here to North America. Overall, potato prices are rising. So how are retailers dealing with this? Well, overall, the indicator is that smaller pound bags of potatoes are seeing a jump in price. In fact, one through four pound bags of potatoes saw an increase in price of about 6% 
compared to 2020 in 2021. So is the answer for potatoes and inflation simply just packaging them in smaller packages where you can raise the price per pound a little bit on those? Obviously, we know we've seen a lot of momentum with prepackaged non-bulk produce during the course of the pandemic. Customers just want to grab and go. We've seen this phenomenon with other fruit, apples, oranges, and so forth. Is this trend going to become more pronounced in produce? We've seen certainly traffic push to kind of the micro potatoes or the steamer potatoes, maybe some of those tray packaged potatoes that are out there. So will grocery stores gravitate more towards these, say, three-pound bag of potatoes that packers are generating, particularly for some of the Yukon Gold and Red types? So my eyes firmly stuck on the produce section here for 2022. I think how retailers deal with these high-traffic items will indicate, certainly, what they think about the items in terms of whether they are drivers and retainers of customers versus whether they're simply just there and customers will pick up those products regardless of prices. And we'll get an idea, of course, Kroger and Albertsons and Walmart and Target, they all have data surrounding how important individual produce items are. So overall, that's why it's important to keep a close eye on it because it kind of gives you an idea and gives you a look into that internal data that all the grocers here in the U.S. have regarding their produce section. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. Once again, big thanks to Jeremy for appearing on this week's show. Also, thanks to Hashtag Paid. And a reminder, $500 of free working spend on your first campaign when you visit go.hashtagpaid.com slash retail. The link is in the show notes. Coming up next week, our interview guest is Brad Pope. Brad is the VP of Customer Success at Kinza Insights. And we're going to talk about predictive technology as it pertains to community illness. Why is this important for retailers? Well, it's important in terms of scheduling and making sure schedule levels for their associates are high enough to withstand same-day callouts. It's important for inventory management. It's important for supply chain and a number of different things. So Brad's going to help us get a look inside some of this predictive technology that retailers like CVS, for example, happen to be using can predict even waves of illnesses as much as 200 days in advance. Pretty interesting stuff. And so we certainly hope that you'll join us then. I'll be back with you seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.